Now, if we ever, if we ever need to sit up and take notice of what the Bible says, surely it is now and it is here. Because the words that we find in verse 14 are foreboding and they are terrifying. In verse 14 we read, Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die. What sin, what sin is so great that God vows that there is no forgiveness but death? What failing was so terrible that there is no way back but utter ruin and destruction? Surely these words are foreboding and these words are terrifying. And if ever we need to sit up and take notice, it is here and it is now. So loved ones, sit up and take notice. And the problem is that there were feasts instead of fasting. There were feasts instead of fasting. Notice how this chapter, chapter 22, begins with rooftop parties. Everyone is up on their roofs, and in, the, and in that part of the world, and in that culture, the roofs of houses served as a meeting place, a place where families hang out. And we see here that people are shouting from their rooftops, they're laughing, they're celebrating, they are singing, but not Isaiah. Isaiah says, what do you mean that you have gone up to the housetops? You who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town. Now, Isaiah almost sounds like a killjoy Puritan, doesn't he? Now, that is what people say about the Puritans, don't they? People who, who have turned bitter and cranky by their religion. People who could not stand the sight of people having fun. Now, we don't have the time to get into this, but Puritans were not like that. But nevertheless, the caricature is well known. And Isaiah seems so upset, so angry, and so distraught that people were celebrating and singing and rejoicing but why? Well, Isaiah had good reasons. You see, these people who went to their rooftops to sing and to shout, they were celebrating their brilliance. You see, they knew that war with Assyria was coming. And notice verses 9 and 10. They saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. They realized that their defenses were not in good shape. And so what did they do? They broke down the houses to fortify the wall. So they, they made a clearing behind their defensive walls. They demolished the houses there. And they used the rubbles from the houses to, to repair the breaches in the wall and to strengthen their defensive position. And then we go on to read. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool. Now, these words may sound cryptic to us if we don't uh, remember that Jerusalem was a city built uh, upon a hill 
and he had impressive walls as long as the walls were in good shape. And yet the city of Jerusalem had a critical shortcoming that left Jerusalem very vulnerable because Jerusalem did not have water supply inside the city and Jerusalem got its water from outside the city walls from Gihon through an overground uh, channel that flowed into the city. And so imagine, and we saw this, how back in chapter 7, Ahaz was gravely concerned about the vulnerability. And you can well imagine how vulnerable Jerusalem might be if ever an army, an enemy came against Jerusalem and stopped the flow of water into Jerusalem because no city can survive long without water. And so knowing that this was a critical vulnerability, knowing that this was a critical shortcoming, Hezekiah came up with a plan, King Hezekiah, and his men built an underground tunnel. And it was an engineering marvel because the two points between the spring and the city was more than 350 meters long in a straight line. But of course, when they dug a tunnel, it didn't go in a straight line because they had to follow the various features and go around the obstacles. And so what they did, two groups of people began digging from opposite ends and miraculously, they followed the twists and turns of the landscape and miraculously, they met in the middle. It was an amazing achievement of engineering and planning and it and it very... Uh, Uh, deftly dealt with their vulnerability because they established a protected and secure supply of water into the city. And so they built reservoirs into the city, in the city, and they collected water. And at this point, having repaired the wall and having provided for themselves a secure water supply, they are feeling invincible. They are in an amazingly good mood, and this call for a celebration. And so verse 13, Behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. So what did they do? They were so happy with their cleverness. They were so satisfied with what they had done to prepare for the oncoming war. They threw a party. Everyone was shouting and singing and rejoicing. There were killing animals, eating good meals, drinking, because their future seemed bright. But Isaiah, Isaiah actually knew better because he knew that this coming disaster was from the hand of the Lord to to discipline Jerusalem for her sins Isaiah knew that there was nothing that man could do to protect themselves against the Lord's discipline and his judgment. And so Isaiah says in verse 2, Your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. You see, what will end up happening is that Assyria will besiege the city and many people will die, not from the sword, not from the battle, but from starvation. Because you see, 
as confident as Jerusalem felt at the moment, she was not ready or equipped to face an enemy who was in it for the long haul, who would simply wait out until starvation broke down Jerusalem's defenses and broke the will of the people to fight. And Isaiah foresees that the leaders will abandon the hopeless city to save themselves. Verse 3, All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow they were captured. All of you who are found were captured, though they had fled far away. You see, this was not the time for feasting, but it was a time for fasting. So notice verse 12. In that day, the Lord of uh, Lord God of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for boldness and, and wearing sackcloth. But what did they do? Verse 13. Behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen and slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. That is, the time was not for feasting. What the Lord desired from them was not celebration, but humbling themselves. The Lord wanted them to, uh, to be humbled, to seek the Lord with fasting, with mourning, with prayer. Instead, the people of Jerusalem got drunk, they partied, they had fun. And I think we can now understand why Isaiah did not join in their celebration, why rather Isaiah was so heartbroken. You see, Isaiah is mourning for people who cannot see their fast approaching death. Feast instead of fasting. Now secondly, let's zoom in for a better view and, and understand what actually is going on because we do have to ask this, don't we? Is it really a sin to be optimistic about the future? Is it really so terrible to look at the world through rose-colored glasses? Sure, maybe the people of Jerusalem were a little bit clueless, but is it so bad that they deserve to hear these stunning words of verse 14? Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for you until you die. What is so terrible about their sin that the Lord says they will not be forgiven? Well, Israel's sins and failings and the issues are crystallized. They are embodied and personified in two particular individuals, Shebna and Eliakim. And it is these two men that answer the other question for us. What was so wrong and terrible about uh, Jerusalem's sin that they deserve to hear these stunning words? Shebna and Eliakim, now we will have an opportunity uh, to read more about them in later chapters of Isaiah. But they were both high officials in the court of Hezekiah, and they both personify Israel's unforgivable sin. Now, verse 16, notice how God rebukes Shibna. 
Who are you, the Lord says, to cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? And God says he will put him to death. Verse 17, Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office, and you will be pulled down from your station. You see, Shibna, he was an official who used this position to indulge in luxury, just as God called his people to fast and to repent. And Shibna has no regard for God. He gives no thought to God's glory. And he cares only about improving his station in life. And he embodies the very mindset of Jerusalem in verse 13. Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's the mindset that says, what is more to life? What is more there? What more is there to life than to eat and drink? There's nothing else to live for. There's nothing greater to pursue than my pleasure, my fun today. Shibna only cares about this life and about himself. And he is smug that he can meet all his needs all by his clever self. And that is Israel's Jerusalem's sin crystallized in the person caring nothing at all for God, enriching himself and indulging in and pleasure and luxury just as God called his people to repent and fast. So satisfied in his cleverness to provide for himself and to meet all his needs. And the Lord says, not so, you shame of your master's house, and I will hurl you away violently. Then we come to the second man, Eliakim. In Shibna's failing, God turns in turn and places Eliakim in leadership, and he gives him great authority. Verses 21 and 22. God says, He, Eliakim, shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And God makes him a peg. He means a tent peg that secures the tent, that secures a home. God is giving Eliakim honor and authority, and through him people will find stability. But then Eliakim also falls into a temptation and he begins to think himself indispensable. Verse 25, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg will give way and it will be cut down and fall and the load that was on it will be cut off. There's a slight shift in the imagery. At first, the Lord blessed Eliakim with authority and honor, so he became the source of stability for his family and for his neighbors and indeed for the city and for the nation. 
but he begins to think that he is their savior. He begins to think that he is indispensable, and he becomes a peg, a hook on a wall. And when you have too much weight on it, the hook breaks, and everything that was hanging on the hook falls to the ground. And this is, again, a crystallization, a personifying, an embodiment of Jerusalem's sin. It's a faith that is turned inward upon himself to everyone's great disappointment. So if on the one hand, Shibna personifies salvation by works, it's the mindset that says that he can meet all his needs himself. On the other hand, Eliakim is one who sees himself as the hope and salvation for all. And they both strike against God. God who alone is sufficient to save who alone can bear up all the hopes and dreams that we place on him. And for that sin, there is no atonement. So then third and finally, how do we live according to this chapter? How does this chapter build us up? And it is to note Finally, that Jesus, Jesus holds the key of David. Now, as I mentioned earlier, Jerusalem's water insecurity made her vulnerable. And this was a great source of fear and anxiety for Jerusalem. But it's amazing that they never stop to ask the question, doesn't God know? Don't you think, don't you think that God knew what he was doing when he chose a place for his people that was vulnerable, that lacked the critical resources? But don't you think that God knew what he was doing when he placed his people at a very place where they had to depend on God for provision, for safety, and to survive. Yes, God knew what he was doing when he placed his people in Jerusalem, when he picked Jerusalem as the place where he dwells. He chose a place for his people that drew out of them trusting dependence from the very beginning. Because you see, God was teaching his people from the very beginning that their safety will not come from her walls, that their safety will not come from their cleverness, but that their protection, safety, resources, peace, prosperity will all come from the Lord and Lord alone, and they had to depend on him and lean on him. And no one, and no one can follow God who abandons this life of faith. And amazingly, they never stop to ask seriously, well, doesn't God know what he's doing? Doesn't God know what we need? Instead, they fretted, they worried, and anxiously came up with schemes 
to save themselves. And what this helps us to think about is the fact that God often places his people in situations that can only be faced with faith. Haven't you experienced that in your own life? God, sovereign God, who controls all things, who we know loves us, he has placed us in situations that we absolutely are unable or incapable of facing apart from faith. And so often we forget to ask, but doesn't God know what he is doing? And we forget to remember. Of course, God knows. Of course, God knows. But he has put you and put us in situations in order to draw out of us trusting dependence. That we might lean on him that we might know and learn that our security, our hope, are never from what we can do for ourselves, how we can meet the challenges of the day, but that our hope and security are in God and from God. You know, the difficulties and the challenges that we've been living this past year are dealing with this pandemic. Now, we needed to remember, didn't we? Of course God knows. Of course God knows what he is doing. The challenges have been great, but we needed to remember, of course God knows. And so we leaned on him and and we depended on him. And that goes the same with our many trials in life. There's no way we can face them. They're too daunting. They're too great. And that's when we need to remember Of course God knows. Of course God knows that we cannot face face this or deal with this in our own strength. And so he is calling us to depend on him, lean on him, to trust him, and to wait on him. Because you see, when we feel that we have everything under control, then we do not have to be in that uncomfortable position of having to trust and wait on God. And that is why God puts us in situations, brings us trials, where he can teach us where our hope and strength and resources are from. Now, that is not to say that using our knowledge and skills to our advantage is a sinful thing. You know what Hezekiah's men did building that tunnel? It was an amazing achievement. And had they done that in faithful trust of God, it would have been a praiseworthy thing. But it is when we use our skills and knowledge and resources not as a means of trusting God, but in order to replace our dependence and our trust in God, that's when we have lost our way. And so I ask you, how do you live with faith today? How do you live faithfully today? And notice how God's word to Eliakim in verse 22 
is actually repeated and applied in the New Testament to Jesus in Revelation 3, 7. The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. You see, these words were truly and utterly fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and Jesus is the atonement for all who have failed, all who have trusted in themselves. As long as we trust in ourselves, there is no atonement for us. But for our sins, Jesus died, and in His death was our atonement. And because it is of Jesus that the Lord says, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, we realize that Jesus, He is our encouragement. He is our resource. He is our help. And He is the Redeemer against life's hard trials. And in Revelation 3, in the letter to the church uh, in Philadelphia, Jesus says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world. You see, these words taken from Isaiah 22 and applied to Jesus, it is very much about Jesus being our resource and our help, the one we can depend on and lean on to deliver us from hard trials. And that is telling us that in our life's hard trials, we turn to Jesus. And that is how we live faithfully. You see, no one, no one can bear, bear up under the pressure we put on them to be our Savior. You know, when we trust people, even ourselves, there's no one who can bear the burden of having all of our hopes and dreams placed on them because that is a burden that no one can bear. But Jesus can because He is able, because He's the one who opens and no one will shut. He's the one who shuts and no one will open. Jesus is able. We can place all of our hopes and dreams on Him. And when we hang our lives, hopes and dreams on Him, He will never break. We will never fall. He is able. So I ask you, loved ones, where is your hope today? To whom do you look for help? in your hard trials. We look to the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending us your Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have redemption, atonement, hope for today and for future, and assurance that if we place all of our hopes and dreams on you, we will never be disappointed. So we pray, Lord Jesus, we face many trials. We are weary. We are heartbroken. Help us to live by faith and help us to look to you. 
Help us to never replace you with our schemes and our cleverness or the resources which we think are sufficient. But help us to lean on you and receive from you every strength, every resource. And help us to patiently wait and endure. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.